Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Uh, It is the week after Easter, and so I'm going to be talking about a post-Easter story. And the one I chose to talk about uh, tonight is the one of Doubting Thomas. Uh, Thomas, we know, is one of the apostles. And um, yeah, we get a bit about him in Scripture. And so we're going to be looking at Thomas... Um, his role amongst the disciples, we're always going to be talking about doubt and looking at doubt a bit more specifically as well and how it works with faith and our journey too. So I'm going to be reading uh, the story of Thomas from John chapter 20, 24 to 29. And so if we just bring that up, yeah, so when, yeah, when we converted from my computer, this computer kind of all resized a bit, but that's all right, you can deal with the white space. Okay, here we go. So now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so this is the main story we think about when we hear about Thomas the Apostle. We know, we we don't attribute him to probably the, you know, if we put the apostles in like a a hierarchy, we often see the big three being Peter, James and John up the top. Most of the, the stories kind of revolve around them and Jesus' teachings. Thomas, we kind of write off a bit, don't we? We kind of just push him down towards the bottom. He's probably just a shay above Judas who betrayed Jesus. He didn't betray Jesus, but he didn't really believe in the resurrection as well. So he's kind of like doubting Thomas a bit lower down on the, uh, on the chain there. Um, but if I'm being honest with myself, which is hard to do sometimes, I think out of all the apostles or out of all the disciples, Thomas is probably the one I feel I most closely uh, resonate with because I have struggled with doubt quite a number of times in my um, journey, in my faith journey, and it's, it has been difficult, and there was probably a, a good 10-year chunk where I was really just struggling with what do I believe, do I keep going down this, sometimes it just feels so hard to believe, part of it feels so right, but then other parts just feel so outlandish and bizarre, and like, where do I stand with all this? So it was probably a good solid 10 years that I really struggled and really wrestled with this. I was born into a Christian household as well, and so raised in the church, my dad was a minister as well, and so I don't have any whiz-bang conversion experience to fall back on, I don't have a before and after and how things have turned around, things like that, it's always just been this kind of, you know, just constant plateau, and it has been good, but it's been, you know, mostly uneventful, and so it's made me really look at it carefully and closely and think, what do I believe here? And so, yeah, doubt, I can absolutely relate with. And in my journey, I think I've realised that if any Christian, talking to other people, if any Christian is really honest with themselves, I think we all do go through 
areas of doubt in our walks as well. It's not something we might openly talk about because it, you know, it feels like it's a bad thing, like you know, we you know, call it backsliding and things like that. But it is something that I think a lot of us do wrestle with. And if you don't, you will. <laughs> so you've got that to look forward to. Um, but one of the big choices that made a difference for me in my uh, journey through doubt was it doesn't have to be alone. And that's really important because we have a choice. We can do this by ourselves, or we can do this with other people. And I think, I don't really blame Thomas for doubting. Like I said, we all go through periods of doubt, but one of the things I think where Thomas went wrong is that he did pull away from the others. We see um, in, the, uh, in the Bible verse, it firstly said that when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples, Thomas wasn't with them. He had, and we can only assume, he had slunked away, he had isolated himself, and he was just holding on to his grief. Jesus had just died, his whole world was upside down, he didn't know what to believe, and so he chose to pull away. And reading through a lot of commentaries before I was, you know, going to talk up here and just doing some preparation, things like that, one piece of this, uh, really stood out to me, and I'm just going to read it to you here. It says, Thomas did the very worst thing that a melancholy man can do went away to brood in a corner by himself, and so to exaggerate all his idiosyncrasies, to distort the proportion of the truth and hug his despair by separating himself from his fellows. Therefore he lost sight, sorry, therefore he lost what they got, the sight of the Lord. And so when we pull away, we can feel that that's naturally what we want to do, but it really does make things hard. Life is hard, life is hard, so why... Do it by yourself. Uh, moving on with the story, when the other disciples finally caught up with Thomas, they told him that Jesus had appeared to them, and of course, his response was disbelief. And this is the classic doubting Thomas tale. And when he says, I will not believe, we roll our eyes and go, of course, Thomas said that. And we might just throw in a, you know, classic Thomas, oh, ye of little faith, you know, it just makes ourselves feel a little bit more self-righteous when we say things like that. But you know what? At least Thomas was being honest with himself. Because sometimes it's easy just to jump on the bandwagon, just because other people are going one direction and you just might want to go there as well and you can ignore what's going on inside you. And that's not really the right thing to be doing in times of doubt either. So at least Thomas was honest and said, I will not believe unless I see Jesus, touch the wounds and so on and so forth. Sometimes it's easier for us to believe an inconvenient truth than to accept... Sorry to believe an inconvenient lie. Sorry, let me start again. Sometimes it's easier to believe a convenient lie than to believe an inconvenient truth. And so that is something that we wrestle with as well. Sometimes it's easy just to pull the wool over our own eyes. And then a week later, Jesus actually did appear again to the disciples, and Thomas was with them this time. So that's a good thing. They gathered their brother back around them, and it wasn't just enough that Jesus appeared, like he teleported in. In the middle of a locked room, amongst the disciples, Jesus appears amongst them and says, peace be with you. And Thomas was there. And he, Jesus says directly to Thomas, he basically quotes back what Thomas said a week before when Jesus wasn't there. And he said, here, here's my hand, touch my wounds. Here's the wound in my side, touch that. And what happened to Thomas was amazing. It was a complete turnaround. He went from completely unbelieving, to full 180 to full belief. And this was more than just a revelation or a confession from Thomas. This was a huge turnaround. 
the revelation Thomas got of Christ was something that more than any of the other uh, disciples had. So Jesus, uh, throughout John's Gospel, had been called you know, Saviour, Messiah, Chosen One, Anointed One, so on and so forth. But here, Thomas responds saying, My Lord and my God. And anything in Scripture that is repeated is there for emphasis. And so he uses the two Greek words, kiros and theos, for Lord and God. And this is the first time in John's Gospel, since chapter 1, when John's introducing the whole Trinity thing, that Jesus is actually called God. He actually gets it. Thomas actually gets it more than James, Peter, John. He gets it more than any of them. He, Christ is God, not just working for God, not just the Son of God, but he is God, the one and the same. And that is a massive and significant shift in Thomas. After that, we don't get a whole lot more about Thomas, at least in the Bible. We get, uh, but there are quite a few other texts about Thomas, about what he does afterwards and what happens earlier in his life as well. Um, a lot of this doesn't make into the canon and that's because there is some really weird stuff <laughs> in these books. Really interesting though, but pretty, pretty weird. Um, and so I just want to look at some of these other uh, Thomasine texts just to uh, just flesh out the man of Thomas as well. And so the first thing that we get, and this isn't the weird part, but the first thing we know about Thomas is his name actually isn't Thomas. His name actually is Judas. But I think the writers of the Gospels call him Thomas, probably so not to mix him up with Judas Iscariot. Um, the word Thomas, or the name Thomas, you can see uh, in the actual Bible passage, is actually Didymus, which actually means in Greek, twin. And funny enough, it also means testicle, because there's two of them. <laughs> but... That's probably not what it is. So it's so his name, <laughs> yeah. So his name is either Judas the twin or Judas the testicle. I'm going with Judas the twin. Judas the testicle sounds like a like a really bad gangster name. <laughs> so so Thomas is a twin, and there's a lot of thoughts about what a twin. What why is that significant? Why is that even mentioned in scripture? Because everything in scripture is there for a reason. And so there's a few thoughts on this. So firstly, and the most obvious one, most likely, is that Thomas just has a twin, a brother or a sister, that is a sibling that doesn't really get mentioned in Scripture, or at least isn't identified as his twin. That's probably what it is. Uh, then there's a lot of writers that actually use this name, twin, Didymus, as an analogy for Thomas being a twin to ourselves, a mirror to ourselves. So our doubt is Thomas's doubt, and our revelation is Thomas's revelation. There's actually quite a lot of writing about that. And then the weird stuff, which I'm just going to indulge you a little bit because I love this stuff, is um, there's, there's little pieces of writing that talk about Thomas is the twin of Jesus himself. And so we've got some books, that, so we, books of Thomas, we have the Gospel of Thomas, we've got the Acts of Thomas, and there's also the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which talks about Thomas growing up as a child with Jesus as a brother. And that just opens up all sorts of problems there and I don't think any of this obviously it's not canon but I don't think any of this is actually there's no evidence really to back this up where I think this comes from is um, the Jew the, the rabbis whenever there's gaps in scripture and things like that they would often ad lib and fill in gaps with their own assumptions or hypotheticals just to kind of flesh out the story as well and that's probably where this comes from but even just initially like when we think Jesus is born, he's in Bethlehem, he's in the manger, Mary and Joseph are there with lights around their heads, and the shepherds are there as well, and the cattle are lowing, which I don't even know what that means. And where, where's Thomas? <laughs> Poor Tom, baby Thomas. He's forgotten out the back, he's with the pigs. And um, yeah, it, it, can you imagine having 
God as your sibling. That, that sibling rivalry must be off the chart. That's, that's a hard person to live up to. But in the infancy gospel of Thomas, we actually get a few little insights into what Jesus was like with a chi- as a child. And we, we hear and get stories about him growing up, learning how to use his powers, and it's just bizarre. It's, it's, lo- it's kind of like reading um, an origin story of an X-Men or something like that. And so there, there's a few little stories. So one of them is uh, Jesus, he's probably about six years old, he's, um, he's got some clay and he's making some little birds, little bird sculpts out of clay. And, but it's the Sabbath and he can't do anything on the Sabbath and so he gets told off for going, Jesus, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And Jesus goes, oh sorry, and he claps his hands and the birds come to life and they fly away. And that's kind of strange. And then there's some darker stories as well. Like there's, there's must be like the town bully of Nazareth or something and he's kind of like picking on Jesus and throwing rocks at him and you know, as they walk past he kind of like bumps him with his shoulder and things like that and Jesus gets upset so he reaches out and touches this kid and the kid just drops down dead <laughs> and, and says, actually says and his body withered before his eyes and Jesus obviously gets in trouble for that because you're not supposed to do that and so he's like you're a naughty boy and they make him resurrect the kid. And I'm sure that kid never picked on Jesus again. <laughs> and then later on, um, there's a story where um, Mary and Joseph are having a conversation uh, with their um, next-door neighbour. And they're kind of complaining about Jesus. It doesn't say why, but I assume because he's killing kids. <laughs> and, um, and Jesus hears about that. And he doesn't like that. And so he strikes his next-door neighbours blind. But it doesn't say anything about him reversing that. So I guess they just stay blind for the rest of their life because they got annoyed with little Jesus and so yeah some bizarre stuff in there so there's a reason why this stuff didn't make it into the Bible because it doesn't really fit with the uh, rest of the narrative um, but that's the infancy gospel of Thomas you can look it up and get more stories if you like it's brilliant anyway the actual gospel of Thomas again there's a few little bit weird things in here but it gives us a, a bit more of an accurate insight it was actually believed to be written between 100 and 150 AD so it's actually quite one of the closest documents we have that was written to when the events actually happened in real life. And so, while it's not in the Bible, it's actually used by many scholars to authenticate other texts as well. And so, um, through other books as well, like the, uh, the Acts of Thomas, we know that while most of the apostles after Jesus, after the Great Commission, went uh, west into the Mediterranean around Macedonia and Greece and spread the word of God and Jesus and built churches and things like that there. And that was um, fantastic. Thomas went in the complete opposite direction. He went 3,000 miles east over the Arabian Sea and started preaching the word of Jesus and building churches in India. And the journey of him getting to India is actually just as amazing as the stuff he did over there. And actually, if you go over to India today and uh, talk to the Christian population over there, even though it's only a small population in India, if you talk to them, they still recognise that it was St. Thomas that brought Christianity to India. And he's the one that they attribute to bringing their faith uh, to them. And we have to wonder, if Thomas didn't go through that time of doubt, if he didn't struggle with believing in Jesus and seeing and having his doubt answered? Would he had the determination, the tenacity, the drive to go all that way and spread to the word of God in India? We often think that doubt is the enemy of faith, but that's not really true. We, we value certainty, we value facts, and we can often assume that to be faithful is to be certain about what we believe 
and like I'm faithful I know what I know and I know Jesus is the way and that is absolutely fantastic but when we say talk about faith and certainty that's actually a bit of a oxymoron it's like saying it's like saying that I'm brave because I don't fear anything that's not what courage is if you don't fear anything there's nothing brave about you stepping forwards and doing the right thing it's just like with faith we don't have faith and step forwards because we are certain about it. faith means walking in the darkness more than it means walking in the light faith is believing in the absence of certainty and it's in that place of uncertainty that doubt allows us to grow in fact without doubt we'll actually just stay stagnant because if we're certain about what we know if we know what we know and we know that whatever anyone else says is wrong we're not going to move we don't have any reason to because we know we are right but doubt actually sh- pushes us to move. It makes us shift. It makes us put everything on the table and look at it carefully and think, okay, so what do I believe and what do I think is something that might have crept in there by some other means? And so doubt makes us willing to be open to other possibilities. It makes us question what we once believed and prompts us to move, shift and grow, even though we don't know where it might actually be taking us. And I think this is why Jesus tells us we need to walk in faith. He doesn't tell us to walk in certainty, he tells us to walk by faith. Brian McLaren's just recently um, released a book called, it's either called Doubt and Faith or Faith and Doubt. I can never remember which way it goes. Anyway, he talks about um, the stages of faith and Christian maturity. And I don't believe he actually wrote this himself, he's pulled it out of a deeper well of wisdom, but he actually articulates it pretty well. And reading through this, it was actually quite refreshing for me and it put some clarity into my own journey. Like I said, I've spent 10 years just struggling a lot with doubt and exactly what I believe, but this has helped me actually um, understand the different processes I've been to. So I want to quickly just go through with you uh, these four steps tonight as well and maybe consider where, where have you been on this step? Where do you find yourself now? Where have you been? And the interesting thing here, Brian actually says that Doubt is the avenue that connects all these stages together. You only shift from one stage to the next stage through elements of doubt. And so the first one here, I had some nice animations to bring them all up, but we don't have that now, so they're just all up here at once. So here are the four stages, and we're starting at the bottom. So the first one is simplicity. And this is where we start. We all start here in simplicity. And to be honest, some of us actually never leave as well. Here, the world around us is just seen in dualistic terms. Everything is just black and white. And we see everything fits into either one of two categories. And then we, for some reason, even if we're not prompted to, we choose one category to say, yes, this, is, this one's right and this one's wrong. Or at the very least, I like this one more than I like this one. Everything is simple. Everything is either right or wrong, good or bad, safe or unsafe, familiar or weird, orthodox, heretical, whatever it might be. And now there's actually nothing wrong. I don't want you to think there's anything wrong with this way of thinking. It's just a starting place that we have. In fact, this is usually the first lesson we teach our kids. As they're growing up, we have to make we have to explain the world to them, and we do it in very simple terms. And if everything fits in one or two categories, it's very simple. And so think about my experience. I remember when um, uh, Alice, our youngest, was probably about four years old, and our Fung's sister was pregnant with her first child and went and visited her, and Alice looks at her and goes, you're fat. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're going to have a little conversation here. Okay, so there are words we use to describe people. Fat's not a good one. 
let's not use it. And so grows up unseen. Okay, so fat's not a good word to use. But then we go walking around this, like a year or so later, around this time of year actually, it's around Easter time, and we're walking around the shops, and I think it was at Woolies or something, and we see a sign that says, Big Fat Hot Cross Buns. And she's like, <laughs> that sign's got a swear word on it. And then, we, okay, now we have to have another conversation. The word fat's not bad in itself, it's the way we use it. It's the intention behind it. And so even in that little area, a black and white world can start to become a little bit grey. Richard Rohr actually makes some interesting points about this whole dualistic thinking. Um, he talks about the concept of the Trinity being three. The concept of the three is actually there to counter the concept of the two. Because there's something um, in the human mind, basic human mind, we, we almost have like binary minds. We, when we are given two things, two opinions, two people, two pools of thoughts, two political parties, whatever it might be, we say this one's good, this one's bad, and it makes us choose a side. But when we are given three things, there's less of that choosing which one's good, which one's bad. It doesn't support the oppositionalism. It supports dynamism. <laughs> and it allows us to be more fluid. It changes the way we perceive things. And so the whole, um, the whole concept of the Trinity, part of that is to help combat that dualistic thinking. And Richard says, when we can only see one side against the other, it is the death of the contemplative mind. And I think that's just really interesting. And that's what we like to do here, to, to think. That's what a lot of the morning services are about. We do a lot of contemplative thought, contemplative prayer, and try to move forward in that and see things beyond just the black and the white. Stage one is also very authentarian. I don't know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> we are told to think, and if we agree with what we are told to think, then... We are in the good camp, and we like to be in the good camp, don't we? We like to think we're the good guys because we believe this, and everyone out there is wrong, they're brainwashed, they're misled, whatever it might be. And we've met people like this, haven't we? They, they're just so intent of proving that they are in the good camp. They are right, and you are wrong. And that, I've come up with people um, in this place again and again, and, and they can come across as angry and judgmental and very narrow-minded, and that is because their structure that they've built is just so, um, so rigid, so fragile, that if they allow any doubt to creep into that, they have a foundation of certainty and they're desperate to, uh, to defend it. And if doubt creeps into that and cracks that certainty, the whole structure can come falling down. And so they're not only trying to prove their right to you, they're also trying to prove their right to themselves as well. And it's really hard to have a conversation with people in this mindset. And doubt, the doubt that creeps in, we often think it's just, just an intellectual thing, like this doesn't actually make sense anymore. But more often than not, it's also an ethical thing as well. And sometimes it can feel like, well, I love my church, I love my, you know, my community or whatever, but I don't like the way my church or my religion or my faith or whatever that might be, my denomination, is treating other people or other groups of people. There's something that doesn't sit here right with me. And so as we, that doubt begins to creep in, we start to think, okay, so I thought I was in the good side, but maybe over here is the good side now. So we try, it's, we're still dualistic thinking, but we're questioning what side are we on? Are we the good guys or are we the bad guys? 
it's this struggle between which side of the fence we should be on that prompts us to start moving into the next phase, which is stage two up there, which is a little bit hard to read, complexity. And so things are still black and white, but there's a lot of different black and whites. Here we become more pragmatic about our ideas and our experience no longer matches what we are taught. And I said before that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but here I think we can say that doubt is the enemy of authoritarianism. Just being told what to think by the authorities doesn't cut it anymore. We begin to think for ourselves and understand the world around us and our experience doesn't fit into what we are taught. And so, like I said, we think we're in the good camp, everyone else out there is in the bad camp. But then we go out there and we meet a Catholic, someone who's Catholic, and they don't seem like a Pharisee at all. They're actually quite nice. <laughs> and then maybe someone at work, a colleague, it might be Jewish. And all of a sudden, oh, hang on, these people have some really amazing insights about the character of God. And I can't help but feel like something in that resonates with me. And then maybe, you know, at the shops and you, you meet... Uh, someone who's Muslim and they're not hell-bent on destroying Christianity and they're actually a beautiful person and they and you share a lot of ideals with them like peace and generosity and kindness and so all of a sudden these bad people aren't so bad there's gray areas starting to creep in there as well and so we begin to question it and so in stage one we get told what to think. In stage two, we start to work it out for ourselves. And the farther we go down this path, the more questions we have, but the less answers we seem to find. And so, again, we find ourselves in doubt. In an example Brian McLaren gives in his book, he's talking about, um, in stage one, simplicity, we're sure there are five steps to salvation, for example. And we're sure this is the right five. And then in complexity, it's like, oh, I've got my five, but these people over here have their five. Maybe this is the right five. As you enter, exit out of uh, complexity and into perplexity, you start to realise maybe there's just no five steps at all <laughs> and everything is just ambiguous. And then that brings us to uh, stage three. And this stage can feel terrifying. It can feel like the ground's being pulled out from beneath your feet and you feel like you're falling and everything is held in question. Brian McLaren calls this all in doubt. And you begin to let go of the ideas you once held solid as gospel and you look around at anything and everything for answers. But at the same time, you have a very critical mind now because you've been burnt probably a few times and so you find fault with everything. You can't find a perfect structure. You know, the Christianity, God, it's all supposed to be built on this idea of perfection, what heaven is like, but there's no perfect structure because we live in a human world. And so you become cynical about your cynicism, you become sceptical about your scepticism. There's no black or white anymore, everything is just grey into grey. And the task at this stage is simply just learning how to live in this place of flux and uncertainty and somehow find peace in here. And then eventually, if you're asking the right questions, you can come to a place of harmony, that's stage four. So... In this stage, we find peace, but it's not because we get the answers to the big questions that we're asking in perplexity. We start realising that having all of our questions answered isn't as important as how we actually choose to exist amongst the uncertainty of it all. And so there's a quote, I've got it there on the next slide, 
that's in the book that I think kind of sums this up quite well. There are joys in simplicity. There are victories. There are joys in complexity too. And there are even certain satisfactions in perplexity. But there is a quiet fullness of joy that comes after perplexity. We might call it humility, even maturity, or better, harmony, because it not only transcends the previous stages, but includes them. It integrates simplicity, complexity, and perplexity into a rich, dynamic, four-part harmony. And it's a clear and open space, a quiet time, and a place that makes room for the new melodies to take shape and find a voice. There is nothing like the life that is born through the hard labour of becoming, enduring, never giving up, never letting go, and then paradoxically, letting go and then receiving all you had hoped for and more. And I just found that quote just so beautiful and it really resonated with me when I read it because to talk about stage four, I, I, would, I would find that quite difficult to talk about. The f first three stages, I feel I um, gel with quite well, but that's because I don't feel like I'm completely in the harmony. So I'm not standing up here saying, I've got this all worked out all together. I would still say I'm very much in stage three, but with maybe a few toes over into the harmony line. And so for very, very much of the stuff I'm looking at, I'm reading where I am at the moment, it is perplexing. It is grey. And I'm still trying to make heads and tails of a lot of things and still frustrated that I have a lot of big questions that haven't been answered. But every now and then, when I dip my toe in that pool of harmony, all those big questions, the seeking the answers to those don't, doesn't seem to matter quite so much. And there is a joy and a happiness and a hope there. And it's beautiful. And I hope in my years to come, I can dwell there for longer and longer. But us humans, we're complex creatures. And so just because you've reached stage four doesn't mean you're now always going to be in stage four. My experience has been, while there are four stages, the the, um, the path isn't always linear, kind of going up and then back a bit and up and down. And so sometimes I find myself in a very harmonious place and it's beautiful and it's colourful. And then I learn something new and then all of a sudden I'm back to simplicity and what I've just learnt is right and you're wrong and I want, I'm hell-bent on defending this again. And so it's we're up and down, we're, we're complex creatures. Anyway, returning back to the story of Thomas... There's still just one thing that irks me about the story of Thomas. You see, Thomas had his doubts and he had his demands on Jesus. I want to see the wounds and touch them myself and then I will believe. And what happens? Jesus appears before Thomas and Thomas touches the wounds and he believes. That's fantastic for Thomas, but it hasn't happened for me. Jesus has not appeared before me in my bedroom at night when I'm praying and yelling and screaming, going, where are you, God? No Jesus, no touching the wounds, and that's frustrating. I haven't had an angelic visit, I haven't had a burning bush, I haven't had any big signs like that. And sometimes I feel like it would just be so much simpler if God just made it all certain and laid it out for me, black and white, crystal clear, so I had no doubt whatsoever. And the only answer in the story Jesus gives us to this is, it sounds something like a beatitude, doesn't it? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's good, but it's a little lacklustre at the same time because I want the big answers. But if we think about it, if certainty is the destination, if we will be certain, and I believe we'll all have certainty at one point when we do finally come face to face with God in whatever way, shape or form that might be, we will have certainty when we're with our Father again. But in the meantime, 
maybe there's something to be gained by walking through this journey of faith. And if history and the Bible has shown us anything, it's that God's not really in a rush to just give us all the answers to all our big questions, all the mysteries of the universe. And not just in us as individuals, but also throughout, you read the, the Bible, there is an evolution of understanding, of revelation of God throughout people. In the early Old Testament, people did horrible things in the name of God because they understood one thing about God. But then later on, God's saying, no, it's not like this. I'm more like this. Even in the New Testament, even with Paul, he's talking about, you know, the don't call unclean what I've cleaned. There's a gradual revelation of who God is and his character to us. God is not in a rush just to give us all the answers. So there must be something else to be gained in that journey as well. That may be helpful or maybe not, depending where you're at. One thing that has helped me, though, in my wrestling with doubt is the whole concept of big God and there is so much I cannot understand so really and to put this in very simplistic forms there's a choice that I found myself confronted with in my in my walk and that was do I choose to believe in something or do I choose to believe in nothing and that was a hard choice at some points but eventually I chose and choice is really important in this stage of perplexity because what we choose is what's important and I chose to believe in something because to believe in nothing was just for me it was just too empty and that just left too many questions as well even even logically it seemed more um, more logical to believe in something in a God than nothing and so even though I chose to believe in something there's still a lot I don't understand and when things don't happen the way I wanted them to expect them to or when God's not replying to my prayers the way I want him to, or even just met with silence, end upon end upon end, deafening silence. It's not because he's too small, powerless, just doesn't care or confused and just not sure what to do. No, it's because our God is so big, his ways are mysterious to us. And we cannot know what he's planning or where he's leading us. It's, it's like we're a baby still in the womb. And a baby in the womb cannot even start to comprehend the vastness of the world out there. I can't understand, you know, nature, the beauty of the mountains and the oceans, the vastness of the universe, the, uh, the new TikTok memes that are coming out, all that kind of stuff. A baby in the womb, a fetus can't work that stuff out. It has no grasp on how to concept it, how to comprehend it. It can't even grasp its mother, even though its mother is surrounded and in the baby and around the baby, it can't even grasp what its mother is, what its mother even looks like. But one day it will once it becomes face to face with the one who gave it life. And so the gap we feel in my mind and understanding, the gap we feel isn't because God is too small and just doesn't care, but it's because he's so big and we just can't comprehend it. And I choose to have faith in that, that God knows what he's doing and he's silent not because he doesn't care, but there are reasons there as well. I just cannot comprehend now. And so it's these choices that help me move into this place of harmony and having these choices and finding peace with them that makes me feel that place, it puts me in that place of peace. And so, just to finish, just to reiterate, I want to say that doubt is not a curse, but it's a sacred instrument of God used to push us forwards as we outgrow the boundaries we find ourselves in again and again and again. And so I just want to finish with that thought of big God. And so I just want to invite Brian and Jess to come back up. We're just going to go through one last song tonight. And this song makes me think about big God. 
And I just want to finish tonight in a, with a, in a place of prayer and ministry together as well. So as we, pray, as we sing the song, you can sing, or if you, if you have been struggling with doubt or really anything else, then make the choice. You don't have to do this alone. If you want some prayer tonight, come and see me, see Matt or the person sitting next to you. And let's do this together because life is hard to do it by yourself. So let's make the choice to do this together. If you need prayer, if you need some ministry, please don't hesitate to ask. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.